part one of the story of Achitofel. In this podcast, we'll discuss firstly who was Achitofel, how it was possible for such a great terrorist scholar and sage to fall so badly and to have such a massive descent. What was his motivations behind betraying King David, behind betraying David HaMalach? Why he committed suicide? And also analyzing what the meaning behind his strange suicide letter, what it actually meant. But before we get there, let's talk about his origin, his birth. Achitofel was born in the year 2888, which is four years after King David, before, four years after David HaMalach became the, became the king of the Jewish people. The Achitofel, who was, who was a very wise man, he was, it seems like he was born exceptionally wise, or at least at a very young age, he was already exceptionally wise. He never saw Doyek HaDomi, who's a very similar type of character. You would imagine that they would have seen each other. Hashem actually did an incredible kindness to, to David Hamel, to King David, ensuring that these two characters never ganged up on King David together. But he, as a very young boy, became a student of King David, a very, sounds like a very dedicated and loyal student of King David. He could have come from the city of Giloi, because he's called Achitofo Hagiloini, which possibly could be the name of the city. And at the age of eight years old, he got married, which was not uncommon in those days. Um, in the earlier generations, people did get married a lot, a lot younger. At the age of eight years old, he had a son whose name is Aliam, and his son Aliam, at the age of eight years old, fathered a girl whose name was Bathsheba, who was exceptionally famous, and we'll get to her in a little bit. He was an exceptionally close student of King David, to such a degree that at some point they became exceptionally close friends. And as his brilliance, Achitofel was such a wise man, as his brilliance began to expand, King David considered him more of a colleague than a student. And then, eventually, as we'll talk soon, King David even considered Achitofel to be his teacher. But we'll get there in a little bit. It says about King David, King David loved him more than he loved anyone else. Achitofel was such a close friend of King David that he was he was considered to be the closest, most beloved friend that King David had, that David HaMalach had. What happened was, and we're not going to discuss it in this podcast because it's kind of a story of its own, at some point, Bathsheba, the granddaughter of Achitofel, who was married to a man called Uriah, Uriah HaChiti, who Achitofel liked a lot, David HaMelech ended up marrying Bathsheba. And Achitofel began to despise King David. Whether it was because he did a sin, or what he perceived to be a sin, of course King David was way beyond, way holier than doing a sin, but Achitofel became um, upset at King David. It seemed like he kept the cards to himself. He didn't show King David that he, that he was upset at him. He didn't show David HaMelech that he was angry at him. But he was, he was livid at King David because of this whole incident. And at that point, no longer did he, did he consider himself to be a close friend of King David, even though David HaMalach still continued to consider Achitofel as a close friend and continued to respect Achitofel. An interesting thing about Achitofel, and we'll talk about his descent into, into, 
all the dreadful things that he was going to do. But before, even before that, an interesting thing about Achitofel was he never had a bad a bad dream in his life. The Gemara brings this down. So he never had a bad dream. Rehuna says wicked men don't have bad dreams. Hashem doesn't want to trouble wicked men in this world, lessening their punishment in the world to come. Therefore, if they would have a bad dream in this world, it would kind of you know it would diminish their pain in the next world. So Hashem said, you know what? Let Achitofel always have good dreams, no bad dreams to him. Um, and so, Achi Toifel at some point began to be considered the teacher of David Amalek. How did that come about? The, the Mishnah actually, in Pekah Avis, it even talks about this, a lesson that we can learn. The, the Mishnah says, any person that teaches someone else Torah, they should treat them with exceptional respect. What's the proof of this? How do we know that someone teaches you Torah, teaches you, you know, the wisdom of Hashem, that you need to treat them with respect? That proof is King David. King David only learned two things from Achitofel, and at that point gave Achitofel tremendous respect. And we'll talk about just how much respect he actually gave him later on in the class. But David Amalek would call him my equal, my companion, my friend, just because Achitofel taught him two things. And again, if King David, such a wise man, such an incredible leader, considered a man who taught him merely two small things to be his teacher, us, the amount of respect that we owe to our teachers is, is unimaginable. What were the two things that Achitofel taught David HaMelech? It actually, it's brought down, Kalarabasi brings down what the, what the two things were. Achitofel noticed that King David would learn alone. It doesn't explain why. My understanding is King David was on a, of a caliber of his own, and he probably didn't have many people he could learn with, so he, he learned alone. And Achitofel noticed, noticed this, and Achitofel said that Torah is preserved through friendship, through learning with friends, more specifically. And Achitofel advised King David to, to learn together with other people. And King David did that. And another thing that he taught him, he said, when you go to pray, run like a person who's chasing after a king. Don't just merely, you know, saunter along or walk along when you're going to pray. Run like you're running after a king. And King David liked that, that lesson, and he took it to heart. And from that point on, because these two things were taught by Achitofel to King David, to David HaMelech, David HaMelech considered Achitofel to be his teacher and gave him an incredible amount of respect. Now, another thing happened that also was a big motivator in in Achitofel's behavior towards King David Hamel, because it's very strange to understand why a man who was the head, at some point he became the head of the Sanhedrin, the head of the, the, the high court of the Jewish people, to have such a position like that, you had to be an incredible genius. And um, it, it's really strange that a man that would be so corrupted could have reached such a high position, such a high position. How did not all his terrorist study protect him? What was his motivation for going against King David? So the rabbis explained two things. Number one, the incident that happened with his granddaughter, he didn't forgive King David for it. And number two, he had a special type of leprosy. And the leprosy, the lep, the leprosy, the tsaras that grew on him, it was unique and it also glowed. And he, he believed that this glowing that he saw on the leprosy on his skin was a sign that he would become king. And from that point onwards, he always had an eye on the throne. He kept thinking to himself, wait a second, King David's on the throne right now, David Amalek's the king, but, you know, if, if we could get rid of him somehow, well then I can make myself king. And he was always angling somehow to become the king. And so much of his motivation was, well, let me just 
let circumstances go their way, King David will pass away and I'll take over his throne. So it was these two motivators, two motivators that really caused a lot of the trouble within David HaMelech. Additionally, it sounds like there was something very corrupt inside him from the very beginning. That, that the Rabbi Yehuda many years later was so distressed. How is it possible that such a great man could, could have sunk so low? And we'll talk about just how low he sunk and what his punishment was. But how was it possible for a man to sink so low? And it turns out the answer that he got was there was something extremely troubling inside of Achitofel from the very beginning. Though he might, might have not, might, he might have been the head of the high court and had such a powerful position and such a close friendship with King David, there was something inside him that was extremely troubling. And I guess as time went on, it kept on, it, it started expressing itself in a, in a very deep, deeply disturbing way, as we'll discuss. To illustrate just how brilliant and how intuitive and how firm his connection was to Torah and, and, and Torah inspiration, there's a, a really interesting story they tell about Achitofel. When King David was young, far before Achitofel was even born, King David, David HaMelech, studied under Shmuel HaNavi, Samuel the prophet. And they discussed so many tremendous ideas Shmuel Anavi's official student was David Hamalach. The Torah was transmitted from Shmuel to David. That's, those two incredible um, historical figures are literally in the chain of Torah as we received it. One of the things that they discussed was one of the biggest, most important uh, pivotal ideas in Judaism, which is the Beis Amikdash. Shmuel Hanavi trained David Hamalach how the Beis Amikdash is supposed to be built, which is, we're going to get to in a little bit. And he gave him a scroll that had all the explanations explaining how the base of Migdash, how the temple was to operate, how it was to be built. He gave that scroll to King David, instructing him that this is, this is how it's to be done. Shemuel Navi understood that he wasn't going to see the, the temple, but David Hamalach would be somehow involved, and we'll get to that soon. And so he gave him this scroll. Down the line... Before the temple was even built, people wanted to see the scroll. And so they were itching, and whether they had the ability to or not the ability to, they had questions that they understood would be inside the scroll. And so they were clamoring to see the scroll. And Achitofel, if he saw someone trying to get their hands on the scroll, he would ask them, what do you want to see? Well, what, what is it on the scroll that you want to know? Achitofel had never seen the scroll. So they would ask Achitofel, they would tell Achitofel the question. And Achitofel would tell them, this is what the scroll says. He had never seen it. His divine inspiration was so unbelievably strong he was able to discern what was on that scroll that Shmuel had transmitted to his official student David HaMelech Achitof had never seen it and he was able to see and he was so sure that he was right he told the people if you have any doubt go to the high priest ask your question to God by the Urim Vatun by the breastplate of the of the Kayin, of the Kayin God of the high priest and see what God has to say. See if God agrees that this is what it says on the, on the, on the parchment. People, of course, were very curious and they did that. They went and they challenged, they asked God, is this truly what it says? And Achitofel was always correct. Whatever he said, that scroll said, he was absolutely right. He was so unbelievably wise. He was such, he was a terror, a giant of, of an incredible caliber. And it, it was, it was, um, it was, always, his track record was absolutely always correct. We'll talk about that again. Also, his incredible track record and how wise he was. The Gemara, to illustrate how wise 
Achitoifa was, it said that in the topic of, you know, it's called Ohalos, which is a topic that talks about a dead bodies transmit impurity. Now, if a dead body is inside of a tent with another, with a person, the person didn't even touch it, he still gets that, he still, that impurity is transmitted to him and he needs to go through the process of purification. Again, these are laws that were more applicable during the times of the temple. Now, in that as well, there was this really niche subset of a subset of laws that dealt with a wooden closet that was floating in the air. Again, nowadays it might actually be quite relevant. Now we have hovercrafts and helicopters and airplanes, etc. But in those days, this was an exceptionally niche topic. No one really explored this because what does it even mean to have a tower, to have a closet that's floating in the air? Achitofo had 300 laws that he would teach related to this subset of a subset of laws. It shows you just how incredibly wise he was in topics that no one explored, no one touched. Achitofo had an unlimited stream of genius to talk about all in this incredibly niche topic. To such a degree was his wisdom. And before we start the story, this is probably the most important part. This is like the, the, the real, the real um, understanding of just how wise he was, the verse in small base, in Samuel number 2, says, the advice that Achitofel gave in those days to people, when people would ask him, ask Achitofel advice, it was like someone was asking the word of Hashem. It was like someone asking the word of God. Achitofel was so unbelievably wise that his, his, his advice was like godly advice. What's even interesting from that verse itself, which, I mean, it, it just, it, it reinforces that verse so much, so much more. Mamlores brings this down, and it says that the word man, like a, the, it says the advice that Achitofel gave in those days was like someone that inquired from the word of, the word of Hashem. The word man in that, that refers to Achitofel is not even in the written version, it's only in the red version of that verse which almost is trying to tell us that Achitofel wasn't fully man-like. He was almost angelic. His wisdom was of another, uh, another dimension entirely. He, he wasn't like a regular human being. People didn't consider him like a regular being. When they asked him advice, they didn't question. They just followed because he was always correct. He was always precise. What he said was absolutely right. It was like asking God. No one challenges that. Unfortunately, as the story is going to progress, you're going to start to see that wasn't all that good that people didn't challenge his advice. That was going to create a tremendous amount of problems. And one of the most humiliating, one of the most embarrassing stories in Jewish history was going to, was going to unroll because people didn't challenge his advice. But before we get there, a long time before we get there, King David conquered the city of Jerusalem. And again, that's a story of its own, which we may explore in a different podcast. But once he did, he wanted to bring the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, the Aron, he wanted to bring that to, to Jerusalem, to the, his, the city of David. And so, before he did, he ordained 30,000 or 90,000 rabbis, and, and he gave official ordination. He had been ordained by his teacher, Samuel the prophet, Shmuel Hanavi, and so he ordained 90,000 rabbis, and what he did was, he didn't Add Achitofel to that list. Achitofel wasn't one of the people that had officially been ordained by King David. Achitofel was livid. He was absolutely furious. He was extremely offended. How come King David's ordaining, giving you know official rabbinic ordination to all of, all of these people? Meanwhile, Achitofel considers himself the greatest of the great, and King David didn't give him ordination. It made him absolutely furious. And 
then King David begins the process of bringing the ark to the to Jerusalem. He gets a brand new wagon. He places the ark on top of the wagon, and he has the 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 kohanim, the priests, um, um, escorting the ark. And as they got closer, the ark literally grabbed hold of the kohanim. It, like it it it. it, it it grabbed them, whatever that means, threw them into the air and, and tore them down to the ground. And again, every time they got close, the Kahanim were thrown into the air and thrown on the ground. It was very clear that they were doing something tremendously wrong. And David HaMalach had no idea what was, what was wrong. What were they doing wrong that Hashem was so upset and was throwing these Kahanim around up in the air and down on the ground? And he became extremely alarmed. He called Achitofel, who he knew to be the wisest man, and he asked Achitofel, help me out over here. I'm clearly doing something wrong that's upsetting Hashem. God is throwing these, these priests all around. What's, what am I doing wrong? Achitofel was still so upset and so hurt that he hadn't been one of the official rabbis that had been ordained. So he tells the king, you just ordained 90,000 rabbis. Go ask one of them. Let's see if they have some advice that can help you. You don't need my help. Clearly, I'm not good enough to give you advice. He was a spiteful person. You can already see it from the beginning of the story. And so he tells King David, I'm not willing to help. King David calls all the rabbis and he makes an announcement. This is a big moment in King David's um, kingship. He's taking the Ark of Covenant that had never been in the, the capital city of the Jewish people, never been to Jerusalem, and he's officially bringing it to Yerushalayim, the place where the temple is going to be built. This is an incredible moment in Jewish history. And King David made an announcement. He said, any person that knows what I'm doing wrong and is withholding this information will suffer, uh, eventually suffer the fate of strangulation. A very serious, a very a terrifying form of death. But King David was serious. And the, the threats of a, of a righteous man as great as King David carried exceptional weight. Now, Hitofel started to realize if he didn't say something, this would happen to him. He understood he didn't like King David and his resentment was only going to grow and his jealousy of King David's throne was already growing and it would get a lot worse. But at the same time, he understood King David was a very righteous man. And if King David, David HaMalach, made a threat, it was going to be seen through. So at this point, he realized he needed to step forward. So he stepped forward and he told David HaMalach, you're making a mistake. If you want to appease Hashem, you need to make sure that you bring sacrifices as you bring the orange to Jerusalem, as you bring the orange to Yerushalayim. That was not the right answer. That absolutely was not the right answer. But David HaMalach followed it, because that was the advice that he was given. So every six steps they took, as they traveled towards Yerushalayim, David HaMalach brought a sacrifice. What the sacrifice was is, a, is an interesting conversation of itself, whether it was a bull and a fattened calf, or a bull and a sheep, and what... David Amalek did um, sacrifice at the end, as well as an interesting conversation. But the point was, every six steps, King David made a sacrifice. And that's how they traveled all the way to Jerusalem. And the end of the story, unfortunately, is quite, is quite tragic. The ark looked like it was falling off the wagon. And a very righteous man whose name was Uzzah saw this and rushed towards the ark to stop the ark from falling off the wagon. He touched the ark and dropped dead on the spot. And he was su- Uzzah was such a righteous man. It was such a marring event. But until that happened, the joy that King David had and the excitement of him you know, being able to, to bring the ark to Jerusalem, it was, an, it was a tremendous event, and Achitofel was looked like the hero. He was the one that gave King David the advice. The craziest part, of course, of the story is the advice he gave 
David HaMelech wasn't the right one. The reason why the Kehanim were being thrown up in the air was because the Aaron was not supposed to go on a wagon. Even a brand new wagon, that's not how the the Ark of Covenant was supposed to be transferred. It was supposed to be carried on the shoulders of the priests, of the Kehanim. And Hashem made David HaMelech forget it. The It's a possible. It's an actual verse in Parshish Nasai. It says, And to the sons of Kahas, he didn't give, this is talking about Moshe, Moshe, Moses didn't give wagons. Why? Because the, um, carrying the holy vessels was something that they had to carry on their shoulders. It's literally a verse in the, in the Torah, and King David forgot it. Achitofer renew this. He didn't forget. He remembered. And he knew the reason why the Kahana were being thrown around, what sin they were doing, and he didn't say, and Hashem was so upset. Hashem said, you know the answer, you could have helped out your king, you could have helped out your friend, and you didn't, and Hashem was extremely upset at Achitofel for being so arrogant and refusing to give the, the correct information. Now, of course, the question the rabbis ask is, why did David HaMelech forget this? This is, a, this is something that a school child knows, that the Aron, the Ark of Covenant, is carried on the shoulders, it's not put on a wagon. How come David HaMelech forgot this simple law? A, a law that's literally written explicitly in the five books of the Torah. So the rabbis explain, David HaMelech was punished. In his Tehillim, he talks about Torah. David HaMelech's love for Torah was exceptional. He, he loved Torah so much. And in fact, he even made an entire, his longest um Psalm, his longest Tehillim is dedicated to Torah and in it he says that Torah is like a song to me and that's, you know, that, that sounds like a very poetic praise but Hashem was extremely disappointed Torah is like a song to you <coughs> Torah is so much more than a song why would you just declare it to be a song and so Hashem said you're calling my Torah a song, you know what? I'll make you forget one of the simple laws, a law that even little school children know, that how the RN is travel, how the RN is carried, you'll forget that and you'll make a humiliating mistake and that will be your punishment for calling Torah a song. The Al-Tareba in the Tanya, the Bal HaTanya, he, he explores this a little bit further and his explanation is, is just absolutely brilliant. I can't help myself from, from, from explaining it. He asks... How is it possible that King David would call Torah a song? King David was a was a was a, a king, a Torah scholar, one of the greatest Jewish people, if not the greatest Jewish person in 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 Jewish history. How is it possible that he could have called Torah a song? He got punished for it, but how could he have even misstepped and called Torah a song? What was going? What, what what was his rationale? King David doesn't merely just use poetic licenses to just say stuff. It has to be accurate. So how is it possible? In his Tehillim, which is a thousand percent accurate, he declares Torah to be a song. <coughs> the Alter Rebbe says King David looked at Torah and he marveled at its incredible detail and nuance that Torah has. He said to himself. King David said to himself. Look at this event. If a person brings a sacrifice, and the sacrifice is kosher, the koyan, the priest that brings the sacrifice to Hashem, does it in the right way, the energy that's, that explodes in the heavens, that explodes in front of, before Hashem, is tremendous. 
If a person puts on tefillin, the incredible energy that he draws down and he lifts up, it's absolutely tremendous. It's so overwhelming. And what's so incredible, though, is if a person makes a mistake, let's say, for example, the koyen, the priest that receives the blood to sprinkle it on the altar, receives it in the left hand instead of the right hand, nothing happens. The details in Torah are so important, and King David marveled. It's almost like a symphony. It's like an orchestra. Every single detail absolutely absolutely mattering. If you don't have the tefillin exactly correct, if it's not the right color, the whole, all that energy that you would have elevated and drew, drew down into this world, all the incredible, powerful light that's, that, that, that's generated, spiritual light that's generated by tefillin. If there's a mistake in the tefillin, it's not generated at all. And King David marveled at the impact of Torah. And he said, this is like a symphony. It's like an orchestra. It's just, it's song-like. Ask Al-Tarab, if that's King David's rationale, the power and the influence that Torah has, and how the details and the nuances, the minutiae in Torah has such a such an impacting effect, then why was he punished for that? Isn't that so unbelievably um, special? He wasn't insulting Torah. Based on this explanation, King David was praising Torah endlessly. And so the Balatanya explains, he says, King David was right. Torah really does have that incredible quality, but that's not the essence of Torah. That's the external part of Torah. The truth of the matter is, what really it makes Torah powerful and wonderful and influential is the fact that it's connected to God with this incredible, un, un, um, ex, uh, undisconnected, or um, intimate bond with God. Torah's bond with God, it's a unification with God is what truly it makes Torah special. And King David was on a elevated enough level to appreciate it. Had a regular man called Torah a song, God would have said, well, that's beautiful. You're, you're, you're understanding you know, elements of Torah. But someone as refined and as special as King David should have not talked about the externality of Torah, about the, you know, just a, 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 an idea that Torah represents, but he should have gone right in for the, in, for the internal part of Torah. What makes Torah truly special? Not its impact in the higher worlds, not its, not its influence in this world, not the minutiae and the detail that exists there, not the nuance of Torah and the details that matter. What really makes Torah special is the internal part, is the fact that it's connected with God. And God, and God said, if you want to connect to Torah in a superficial way, God tells King David, I'll make, at least in one area, that you'll connect to, to Torah as well in a superficial way. When someone hears something in a superficial way, they forget. So God said, I'm going to make you forget in one thing. You talked about Torah, about the external parts of Torah. In one area, I'll make you connect to Torah in an external way. That will be your, your punishment, or more correctly, that will be your consequence for connecting to Torah in a superficial way. So King David forgot one element of Torah, he forgot that it was supposed to go on the shoulders. Even the fact that it was the shoulders, the, the, the Al-Tarab explains, that also has meaning. King David then wanted to build the temple. He was extremely bothered by the fact he's living in a palace made of cedar. King David was a very powerful leader. He had, conquests were incredible. He extended the borders of Israel. He was he was feared across the world. The enemies of the Jewish people who had hounded the Jewish people for literally centuries were now terrified of the Jewish people. And the, the kingdom was solidified. And King David has now conquered the capital city. He had a beautiful palace in the capital city. And he was so bothered. I have a, I have a beautiful palace. And meanwhile, the ark, 
The Aaron is just sitting alone and there's no base amigdash, there's no temple. And King David called the prophet Nasan Hanavi and he told Nasan Hanavi, it says, this is really bothering me. I, I, I need to build the temple. Now, it's a beautiful lesson here. Nasan tells him, if you're bothered by this, if this is something in, in spirituality, something in, in godliness and, and, and purity and wonderfulness that's bothering you, it must be inspired for God. God puts into the hearts of people when there's good change to be had, Hashem puts it in, the, in, in, the people's, in a person's heart. And if a person feels that yearning to make a difference, that's a godly feeling. So Nasan tells Nathan, the prophet, Nasan Hanavi tells King David HaMalach, he says, Follow this intuition, and this is a godly intuition. That means that you need to build the base of Mikdash. King David was exceptionally happy. He wanted to build the base of Mikdash. Now he was told by the prophet that this is something that God has, you know, rubber stamped. This is something that God wants him to do. He was exceptionally happy. Nasan Hanavi goes home, and God comes to him and tells him, You've made a big mistake. I don't want David Hamalach to build the base of Mikdash. I don't want him to build the temple. And he told Nasan Hanavi, Go straight back to King David and tell King David, tell David HaMalach, he is not the one to do it. Rush and tell him. There was two reasons why he needed to rush. David HaMalach was not one to hang around with good ideas and just not do them. Lots of people talk about ideas and they don't end up doing them. In the case of David HaMalach, however, when David HaMalach had an idea to do something, he did it. And he did it with exceptional alacrity. Hashem tells Nasan Hanavi, tells the prophet, go tell King David he's not the one to do it, because tomorrow morning he's going to wake up early in the morning and he's going to start building, and he's not to build because this is not his job to do. And number two, David HaMalach was a person that made vows a lot. He would reinforce what he wanted to do with, with, with oaths and with vows. And God told Nasan Hanavi, go tell David Malach he's not the one to do it. In case he starts making vows connected with the building of the base of Middash or the building of the temple, he's not the one to do it. So it's going to be a very big problem if he starts making oaths and vows that are associated with the building. Of course, the big question is why didn't David HaMalach merit to build the base of Middash? His teacher had literally trained him on how to do it. The base Amidas was going to be built by his son, but why did David Amalek not get the opportunity? Something that he so badly wanted to do, why wasn't he allowed to build the temple? So there are many explanations to it. I'll, I'll tell you two of them. The first one was, although King David was so exceptionally righteous, he spent his life warring, essentially going from one war to the next war, killing people and yes these people that were killing him were people the people that he killed were people that were trying to kill him and in that case not only is permitted it's required that you defend yourself and you kill someone that's trying to kill you but still human lives the blood was shed they were killed and David Hamalach was responsible for that and his life was one of bloodshed and it was beautiful and wonderful and God treasured it because this was the right thing for him to do he was protecting himself protecting his kingdom protecting the Jewish people but nonetheless that was what his life was all about and David Hamalach, and, and God said my house is a house of peace I don't want a person that's associated with so much bloodshed and war to take the funds and take himself and to build the temple I'd rather his David HaMalach's son, who was literally not going to fight a war in his life, to be the one to build the base of Mikdash. That was reason number one. And a second reason, which is a really beautiful reason, and it really resonates. David HaMalach was a, was a man who had such a beautiful and wonderful relationship with God, and God treasured everything about King David. 
The book of King David is the most special book that, that, that God treasures. In fact, when we have sorrow and difficulty in our life, the first thing we do is we open it to him and we start reading it because we know God loved King David. God loves King David. And if we read his book, God will say, okay, whatever you want, I'll just do it. That relationship between God and King David was something that, that is one for the ages. It, it was, it's unprecedented how much God loved King David. King David. And so... God said, if you're going to build the temple, and if your children and the Jewish people in the future, if they sin, and I get angry at them, well, I can't hurt the building that you built, because I love you too much. I can't destroy something that you built. What I'm going to have to do, I'm going to have to hurt them. God said, I'd rather you not build the temple. And if God forbid, in the future, the Jewish people do something wrong, which unfortunately, as we know in history, is what happened twice, God said, I'd rather... Take my anger out on the building, on the stones, on the bricks of the temple, rather than hurting the Jewish people. So rather, I'd rather someone else build the temple, and when I get upset at the Jewish people, let me destroy the temple instead of destroying the Jewish people. So God said, take a step back, you're not to build the temple. Even so, David HaMelech was so unbelievably... Um, bothered he wanted this incredible honor he wanted to build a temple he wanted to honor god he wanted to build the temple and though he god told him he can't do it and he understood that that's what he needed to do he couldn't disobey hashem he couldn't disobey god he decided that everything connected with the building of the base the building of the temple he would do himself and so the foundations which weren't technically part of the building of the temple king david said well that's that's you know that's open season i'm going to go for it and david hamelch built the foundations not only did he build them he dug so unbelievably deep the medrash tells us how the yashami tells us how deep he dug he dug 1500 amas into the ground just for a little bit of context, I did. The, I did. I ran the numbers for it. The Petronas Towers in Malaysia, which I believe have the largest foundation in the world, maybe not anymore, are 400 feet deep. David Hamelch dug 2,400 feet in the ground to build the foundations of the base of Migdash. He was motivated to dig this deep, not just to ensure the the structural integrity of the base of Migdash, but he also wanted to dig deep enough that he'd reach the abyss. He wanted to dig, to dig until he reached the very depths of the earth. Why? Well, to what end? On the altar, there were two holes at the top of the altar. And when a person brought a sacrifice, along with the sacrifice, they'd bring an additional gift to God. And that gift was wine. And the part of the ceremony of bringing a, bringing a carbon, bringing a sacrifice to God, was the pouring of the wine into this hole in the altar now people just imagine that the that the hole just went you know a few feet deep or just went into the altar itself it didn't it literally went to the to the home to the depths of the earth king david said well if i'm building the foundations i'm already digging deep into the earth let me keep digging so that way this excavation that's going to be needed for the temple that the holes of the of the mizbeach of the altar are able to go all the way down so when people pour wine and they pour water on sukkahs it's to go all the way to the depth of the earth i'll, I'll do it i'll do that now so he said he, he didn't just dig um, the foundation level however much that was needed for the temple i'm sure it's still a very deep foundation but not 1500 amas into the ground 20 2400 feet he he dug that deep in order for the shisim, for these two um, pipes, so they would go all the way deep into the ground to reach the very depth of the earth. He came to 
that this point, the 1500 Amma point, and David HaMalach wanted to deep, dig deeper, and he came across a curiosity. He came across a very interesting situation. He saw clay covering the ground. And he thought to himself, and there's, a, there's different ways of explaining this Yashami, whether he actually had a conversation with the, with the, the clay itself. King David actually disc- talked to the clay, and the clay talked back to him, which is very interesting. Or the Kerben Ha'idah who says that, you know, David HaMelech, King David merely, like he looked at the clay and he started inferring how it's possible the clay could be there. Whatever the case was, King David understood it couldn't have been there from creation. It must have been from the, giving, the time of the giving of the Torah. And or the, the clay actually told him. Clay told him, "Don't dig any further because this I've been put here from the time of the giving of the Torah." Why? When God gave the Torah to the Jewish people, Jewish people were surrounding Mount Sinai, Har Sinai, and God said, "I am Anoichi Hashem Lekecha. I am your your God." And when God spoke, the entire world shuddered. In fact, the the the, the blowing of the shofar and the thunder and the lightning. They saw the the thunder and they heard the lightning incredible anomalies happened but God's voice trembled the earth it, it shook the, the earth to such a degree that the actual earth began to sink downwards and it sunk deep that the, 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 the waters of the, de- of the deep that's supposed to stay in the deep began to rise and in order to stop that the clay covered over and this protected the world from being entirely drowned during this incredible Mount Sinai giving of the Torah moment the, this clay, King David had gone so deep, he had reached it. And the clay told him, or he understood, that he wasn't to, that it was a bad idea to keep digging. But King David decided to ignore it. He said, I'm digging, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep digging. So he began to break the clay. And when he did, suddenly the waters of the deep began to overflow. And King David realized he'd made a mistake. He shouldn't have dug it. He shouldn't have broken that clay. Now he didn't know what to do. And so... He, there's a, he knew the only thing he could do, and I'll follow the Gemara over here, the only thing he could do was write Hashem's name on a piece of clay and throw that clay down into the rising waters. It'd make its way to that, to that um, geyser that had burst, and it would reseal, stopping the, the, this water from essentially drowning the whole world. But now the question he had was, is it permitted to erase the name of God? He's going to write the na- name of God on a piece of clay. That clay is going to make its way down to the geyser that it had burst, and then either the the words of the, the letters of God's name would be destroyed then, or over the hundreds of years that the temple would be uh, existing, all the wine and the water that was poured down over it, that would uh, um, you know it would it would wear away at God's name, regardless. King David understood that using God's name in such a way would destroy God's name. And so he needed to know, is it permitted to do this or is it not permitted to do this? So he turns to Achitofel, who's hanging around, who's there, whatever it was. He was there then, and he asked Achitofel, what is the law? Is it permitted for me to erase God's name, which is a sin, but to stop the waters from rising and destroying the whole world? Achitofel thought to himself, wait a second, I don't like King David. Additionally, I want to become king. All I need to do is wait for King David to drown, and then I'll I'll take the name of God, throw it down, save myself and save everyone else, and I'll make myself king. So he wasn't so keen to jump in and help King David. He'd rather King David drown first, and then he solved the problem himself. And so 
David HaMelech made an announcement, a very similar announcement. He said, any person that knows the secret on how to stop the water, or whether it's permitted for me to throw God's name into the water, to stop the water, and doesn't tell me his fate will be strangulation. He'll die of strangulation. And at this point, like the earlier time, Achitofel realized if he wasn't to reveal the secret, uh, he wasn't to give the answer to King David, he would die of strangulation. So he told David Amach, it's permitted to erase God's name by doing this. Usually it's absolutely forbidden. In this particular case, it's permitted. One may write on a piece of clay God's name. as a special name of God, and that's a discussion of its own. And you could throw it into the water, and that would, that would save humanity. And King David asked him, you can't just make things up. What's your premise? What's your proof that this is correct? Sahitofel told him it's a kalvachoyme. It's a it's a it's a simple analysis that could prove this. He said like this: If a, there's a law like this, that if a man is has a wife who he believes to be unfaithful, and he warns her, don't be with a particular man, and then this his wife decides to ignore her husband's warning and goes and and has a suspicious event, let's call it with a man, it's not proven that it's adultery, but it's a suspicious event, they lock themselves in a room for a certain amount of time, and there's proof that they were there with one witness or two witnesses, it's a very intricate, detailed law, but now the thing is, the man can't just he, uh, can't return to his wife because she could possibly be an adulteress. On the other hand, it could be fully, um, it could be a fully innocent situation where nothing happened in the slightest and no adultery was committed, so how is he able to return to his wife? This is a really fascinating um, Mitzvah in the Torah called the Soita, with with which happen what what happens is the the husband and wife travel to the temple. They prepare a, wa- a special water and they put special um, dirt inside from under the base of Mikdash, and then they take a name of God on a parchment and they put it inside of the water. And the water disintegrates the name of God. She drinks it. If she actually did adultery. She dies, and the person that she did adultery, wherever he is in the world, he dies too, and both of them in a horrific, horrible, gruesome way. And if they're innocent, however, she survives, and they go back home, and now they know they're, they're able to return to each other, they're able to be husband and wife, because nothing actually happened. Achitofel tells King David, if in a situation where it's just to save the peace between a husband and wife were permitted to erase the name of God to save the peace of the entire world, of course you're able to destroy the name of God. King David realized Achitofel was right. And so David HaMelech wrote on the parchment, on, not parchment, on clay, the a name of God, threw it into the water, the clay descended, blocked the exploding geyser, and the water began to sink. The rabbis even say it sunk far further than the distance of where it was supposed to be. And David HaMelech, King David, composed five 15 um, special Tehillims, the 15 Sher Hamaloses. Sher Hamalos, literally Hamalos means of, um, a song of ascent, a song of rising. Why? King David needed the water level to rise. The water, because of the name of God, the water kept on traveling down and down and down. And King David needed the water level to rise at a healthy, at a, to a healthy location so that plantations under the ground and, you know, the nutrients and, and the earth could be successful. So he said 15 special songs of ascent, the 15 Sheremalas that we have in the Tehillim, that we have in the Psalms, and every one that he said, the water rose 1,000 Amas. And so finally, the, the waters of the deep stayed 1,000 Amas under the ground, you know, 1,500, 
plus minus 1600, and that makes 1000 onto the ground. The, there's an opinion that says that King David actually knew the reason why it was permitted for him to erase the name of God. But because he considered Ahitophel to be his teacher, and there's a very strict law that a person may not educate law, he may not actually paskin halacha, a person not to say what the law is in front of his teacher. If a man comes to a great rabbi, and the students all around, and the man asks, generally speaking, does anyone know the law for such and such and such? All the students need to remain silent, and the only person who could answer is the teacher, and the only way the students are allowed to answer is if the teacher says, okay, one of you could answer. Short of that, if the teacher doesn't give permission, the students must remain quiet. King David said, I have a question. It's my own question, but I can't actually answer my own question, which pertains to practical law, because my teacher, Achitofel, is standing right here. So he asked the question to the crowd, or asked the question to Achitofel, and when he realized that Achitofel wasn't going to help him, he was like, oh, you better answer the question, because everyone's lives are in danger. And so he, he made a threat that Achitofel took very seriously, because Achitofel understood if he wasn't going to answer the question, a very serious curse from a very, very righteous and wonderful person was going to take effect on him. The Ben Yehoyada asks why didn't King David just use the same name of God that Moshe had used to make Yosef's coffin come up? And he gives a whole bunch of really interesting answers, but the the explanation, some of the answers that he gives is he says that in the case of Moshe's um, um, name of God, because Moshe threw it into the water, he threw the name of God into the water, so obviously that was a, a name of God that a person can erase, it was one of the special ones, And but he, he, he gives a whole bunch of very interesting answers, one of, the, one of the answers which I guess is really curious is he says that in the case of the water of Moshe Moshe threw the name of God into the water but it made the coffin rise in this case, the geysers had exploded, King David needed the waters to descend, so he couldn't use the same name that, of God that Moshe had used. In the following, in the upcoming class, we'll talk about the next part of the story of Achitofel, where he assists the rebellion against King David, actively trying to kill King David, joining together with King David's son to try to overtake King David's throne, David Amal's throne, and to actually go to active war against him.